Let's go to chapter 8, the book of Revelation, chapter number 8. We're going to work our way through this section. It's only 13 verses. We are actually going down in the number of verses for each chapter so far, but that doesn't mean it's going to stay that way. Uh, But today, 13 verses. Follow along as I read. Uh, The emphasis, I give you one verse that I'm going to kind of camp on and work on, and it's actually verse 1 today. So, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense and the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. The angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burnt up, and a third of the trees were burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures that were in the sea and had life died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the waters and on the springs of water. The name of the star was called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because they were made bitter. Fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, the night in the same way. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Heavenly Father, this is a rather challenging passage, not to understand, but to actually know that it's true. These things that are coming upon this earth in your time just seemed incredible to us. And yet in this you have recorded it for us that we might know. As your children, we are grateful for your love and your protection And as we have studied Scripture, the truth that we will not be here during this time. There is some relief in all that. But at the same time, Lord, we do have those we love who do not know you. And this is what they will encounter if they do not come to know Christ as Savior. And Lord, I pray that you might uh, give them a heart for you, where only you could change a heart. And perhaps if you should use us, by our words or our deeds, to show them the way to Christ. Use us, Lord. For I believe time is short. You know the calendar better than we do, of course. 
But I believe the time is short and Jesus is coming. And there is much to be done because there is much that's going to be done on this earth that is very, very, very frightful. As we go through this today, Lord, remind us over and over of your great love for us and what you've called us to be in a dark world and help us to take hold of that and to do that. For your honor and glory, we pray, and for the good of those who need to hear the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we work our way into this passage today, Romans chapter, I mean, Revelation chapter number 8, we've been outlining the seal judgments from chapter number 6 and into a little bit into chapter number 7. We've talked about the seal judgments. That's the first of three sets of judgments that would take place during the tribulation period, that seven-year period that is coming upon this world after the church is raptured out. The first set is called the seal judgments. The second is the trumpet. And the third is the bowl judgments. They increase in intensity as they go. And so you will get a good flavor of that today as you heard the words that I read to you Those were primarily the trumpet judgments that you were hearing. Uh, We have not finished the seal judgments yet in our study. We do so at the beginning of this chapter. So I just wanted to put it back into its place, because already we've seen, as far as judgments are concerned, the first seal judgment, some people call it a cold war. We're used to that term historically, a cold war. A lot going on without any weapons fired. Uh, the Cold War concept is usually what is describing the work of the Antichrist here as a power grab, if you will. Conquering without weapons. He's on the first horse in chapter 6 that we read about, the first seal judgment. The second is an open war that breaks out. The third seal judgment is famine that generally follows on the heel of a war. The fourth seal is death, which does usually follow on the heels of a famine. So it all makes perfect sense. But the death that we read about was one-fourth of the population of the world. And if we follow any estimates of today, we're talking about two billion people. And that's, that's actually just incredible to imagine. Uh, the fifth seal was that of martyrdom, believers, tribulational saints. I'll give you a term to signify who they are. That's not you. That's not the church age saints. That's a tribulational saint. A believer who comes to know Christ during the tribulation period, they will undergo incredible persecution and there will be a great number of martyrs. And that's a a frightful thought, I know, still, but that was the fifth seal. The sixth was a physical disturbance like none other. It spoke of it in verse 12 of chapter 6 of a great earthquake and the sun becoming as black as sackcloth. The whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth like a fig tree that's uh, casting its figs during the wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll and was rolled up and every mountain and islands were made out, moved out of their place. It is going to mess up Google uh, Maps incredibly. They're not going to know how to find any place. Anyway, it's something that, you know, there are events that could happen to this world that will alter the way it operates today in such extreme measures. As you probably know, 
the, the talk all the time about the virus going on and things like that. That is disrupt, disrupting a lot of things in this world. And it's like, wow, if that can do that, what can this do that you're reading about? It's like incredible. Anyway, I just said that before you to remind you. That was six of the seven judgments. The seventh one hadn't happened yet. Chapter uh, 7 moves us away from that, as we saw last week. Um, the people of this earth don't, do not respond in a positive way. The end of chapter 6 tells us they, they, rather than repentance, they run to the rocks and the mountains and the hills and they, they ask for it to dump on them and kill them because they know they're under the wrath of the Lamb, but they will do nothing to talk to Him about it. They'd rather be destroyed than to turn to the Lord. And chapter 7 says, but that's not true of everybody. That's my little paraphrase of the chapter. <laughs> it's not true of everybody. There are 144,000 who will be saved. Those are Jews. And there are multitudes of Gentiles who will be saved as well. And that, to me, is just the incredible act and mercy and love of our God, that he could even save them in the midst of that. And he does. It's a display of his sovereignty and his power to save and I love that chapter number 7. It's a refreshing thing, folks, to have gone through chapter 7. And if you need refreshment, we should go back over it again this week. Because it felt good to talk about what the Lord was doing to bring people to himself. And that was good. But chapter 8 takes you away from that again, because now the seventh seal is opened. Jesus, if you picture this from earlier in the book, He's about to break that seventh seal. He's about to, about to open it. And he, they said there were seven seals in it. So most are saying, well, this is it. This is it. These judgments so far have been unprecedented. Nothing like this has ever happened before. They're incredibly severe. They're affecting the whole world. And what is next? Seventh seal is about to break. A great, unusual event happens in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. It's only been 15 seconds. People don't like awkward silence. I have a pastor friend. He's not technically a pastor, but he's filled in, pastored, uh, preaching for us and such up in Indiana. And anytime he'd get to a passage that spoke about what the Lord had done for him in forgiveness of sins, for example, he'd stop. And then he'd go. And all of us were like, oh, you know that feeling? It's like, you know what he's about to do. He's going to cry and he can't finish his sermon. And the whole time we're like, get it together. Get it together. You can do it. Keep going. But all of us feel that, don't we? You know that moment before when somebody's in the middle of something and suddenly they stop. 
And if they're, they're starting to shake a little bit or something, you say, oh, boy. And you try to coach them through it from your own seat. And it usually is interesting moment of silence. Silence is an interesting thing. They say that scientifically, four seconds of silence is enough to cause that awkward situation to increase anxiety and to lower self-esteem. Four seconds in any conversation can cause something like that to trigger. Kind of bugs you, doesn't it? If I just held my time and said, I'm going to illustrate this for the next half hour, we're going to have no sound. Say, well, that, Pastor, don't do that. Right? Let's not, let the, the feeling of it is heavy. Many years ago, and it was a long time ago, it was 1848. Uh, I read an article. It, I didn't read it back in 1848. I read an article from 1848. Um, I was at a museum at uh, Niagara Falls. They had a museum. All the barrels that people went over and stuff that survived the barrel thing. They had all those set up in there and everything else. And there was a little uh, plaque on the wall with a newspaper article in it. And it talked about the day the, the falls went silent. It was 1848. There was a log jam because of ice and such like that. And the water stopped and the falls stopped. And the people of the town were not used to that silence. And they thought the world had come to an end. Because they weren't used to it. If you've ever been there before, maybe a lot of you have. But even with your windows up, you're a mile away and you can hear the roar of those falls. You can feel it almost as you're driving in close to that fall. It's a powerful expression, and I can't imagine what that's like to have it stop. And they did. There was an interesting article written, but I remember reading of that and thinking, what was that like? It stopped for 30 hours. And it was very impressive to them. Uh, Dr. Charles Ryrie was teaching the book of Revelation to us way back in the to me, I was with a group back in uh, uh, 2012, August of 2012. He was 87 years old at the time. He lived uh, uh, four years after that, and he's now with the Lord. But um, he was teaching us the book of Revelation, and there I am sitting there and all everybody else, and, and they brought him in, and he was really feeble, and it took me completely by surprise, because that's not the picture at the back of my Ryrie Study Bible or something like that. I said, Wow. Uh, they helped him in to the room. They helped him walk around to his chair. They sat him down in his chair. He had big, incredibly thick glasses on, and he had his Bible in front of him, and he just opened it up, and he's going to teach us the book of Revelation for 10 hours. And I thought he'd never make it. The appearance was that he was not going to make it. And when he opened up his mouth, I was stunned with the power of his voice and his command of the subject. And he just went right through it, just plowed right through it in such a way that it warmed my heart to listen to it and enjoy it. And he had written a commentary on it, and we all carried those around with us. As a matter of fact, I had him sign mine because I thought that'd be fun. But uh, uh, we're, we had their commentary, we had the notes, and we had everything in front of us. And he just had his Bible. And as he's preaching along and teaching along and stuff, so every now and then he'd say, oh, you're finding that on... 
paragraph 3 on page 17. It's on their left side. You'll see it when you look it up in your commentary. You know, and he'd make comments like that as he went through it. And then somewhere about the fourth hour in, he started teaching, and he stopped right in the middle of a sentence. He didn't blink. He didn't move. He just stopped. You know, to that point where we were awkward suddenly. We didn't know what happened. Did he just freeze up? We didn't know. We are just watching, and it's quiet. And then suddenly you hear his voice say, Don't call an ambulance. I'm fine. And then he just pick right up and go. And he did that twice. And I said, wow, that was interesting. But that was awkward. That was really awkward. We, we were concerned for him, and we didn't know what we were supposed to do. I read of a story of Elisha. And maybe you're not too familiar with this situation, but uh, Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, or Syria, was very ill, and he sent his... his uh, best guy in his kingdom, Hazel, to speak to Elisha about it and see what God's plan was for Ben-Hadad. And he came to Elisha and he asked Elisha to tell him, what, what, is, what, what is God going to do? Is he going to help this man recover? And Elisha says, you go tell him that, that he will surely recover. But the fact is that the Lord showed me that he won't. He said, well, that's a strange story. But what's stranger is what happened next. It says in 2 Kings 8.11 that Elisha fixed his gaze steadily on Hazel until he was ashamed. And the man of God started to cry. You ever have somebody stare at you that long and then tears start to form in their eyes? And what's your thoughts? What do they see that I don't see? What is about to be said? What is about to happen? It's got to be devastating to see that kind of a response, right? What does it mean when heaven goes silent? I want to take those pictures to you because generally they they leave us awkward, uncomfortable. Uh, If you like Wikipedia's definitions, here it is. An awkward silence is an uncomfortable pause in a conversation or presentation. The unpleasant nature of such silences is associated with feelings of anxiety as the participants feel pressure to speak, but they're unsure of what to say next. Or in conversation, the average pause length varies by language, culture, and context. An awkward silence may occur if a pause has exceeded, for example, a length generally accepted for demarcating a subject change or the end of a turn. It may be preceded by an ill-considered remark or the imbalance in which one of the participants makes minimum responses. Alternatively, the tension may arise from the expectation that speech is expected in the setting, such as a classroom or presentation or a sermon. I added, or a sermon. When there is silence in heaven, what are the audience to do? What are they to do right here when when heaven goes silent? Let's put this down. God is not tongue-tied. Opening the seal does not tongue-tie him. He doesn't read it and say, 
He already knows what it says. Right? This isn't about his shock, his alarm. He's not wrestling with, should I say this or should I not say this? He's he's not searching for words. But there is a job that is given up in heaven right now to those who are called to praise Him. They are acting in this verse contrary to what they were made for. In Isaiah chapter 6, there's an incredible display given there about the Lord in His holy temple. Isaiah says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And he starts to describe the glory of the Lord in his temple. And as he's talking about that in verse 3, he says, there's these cherubim there. They have six wings. With two, they, they fly. Two, they cover their head. Two, they cover their feet. And it says, and they call to one another. And they yell, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, the Hebrew in that sentence structure suggests that it's continuous and an unbroken song. It is our job constantly, constantly to say that. And I would suggest that if they were created before this world, which is true, they have not stopped that song since they were created. Think of that for a minute. There's another group that we read about here in Revelation, chapter number 4, verse 8. They were called the four living creatures, and they're kind of unusual beings. They are angelic in nature. By the way, they have six wings too. So I believe they're angelic in nature. They have eyes all around and within, and they're not easy to describe. They're not even easy to draw, but they're there nonetheless. And it says in chapter 4, verse 8, that these creatures, day and night, do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now you've got two different groups going on constantly, never stopping, giving praise to the Lord, and two different kind of praises. I don't know that we can read into this and think that they take turns. I think they do it all simultaneously. In other words, heaven's going to be a little loud. Add to it 24 elders from chapter 4, 9 through 11. The living creature says they give glory to God. They give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Suggested in that, since they are responding to the last group, the living creatures, and praising constantly, they're also praising constantly. Because it says they respond to the first, the first item of praise. Now they're adding to it. Starting to get the picture? You've got a lot of groups doing a lot of things with a lot of words. And then add chapter 7 to it. We saw in verse 10, 11, and 12. The tribulational saints are there. And what are they doing? 
There are some of them out there who are crying out with a loud voice. That's continuous tense. Present tense in the Greek. Present tense. They don't stop. Saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. And they were saying over and over, Amen and blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is all going on up there before that throne. And then, since the rapture has already occurred, you're there too. And what do you think you're doing? You're praising Him. And I don't think we're going to stop. We're going to be giving Him glory too. We're going to be adding our voices to a never-ending praise service. That's pretty impressive. But how much more impressive is it when it stops? Because I believe that when it stops, it is the first time it's ever happened in heaven. That's my hunch. Based on the nature of these words. This is the first time it's ever happened. What a stunning silence this is. What a stunning silence. You know, it's not uncommon that God was called down to the earth and tell, Unbeliever, be silent before me. Not uncommon. You read it in Habakkuk 2.20. You read it in Zechariah 2, verse 13. The world is told to be silent before the Lord because He's great and He's awesome, right? And they're sinful. But this silence we're looking at here, who these folks have a job, a continual duty, and a desire to praise the Lord with ceaseless expression of His holiness, and it's greatness, and this is a very awkward type of silence. I would suggest that it's, it's anticipating something far more destructive than what has ever been seen. That's where they're standing there. What is on that last seal? What is it that everyone stops? In anticipation. You've been there before in some different ways, smaller ways. A letter comes in from somebody you've been anticipating it. Somebody else is opening it and reading it. But what do you want to know? What's in that letter? Tell me quick, right? Read it out loud. We want to know. Somebody's on the phone and you don't hear them. But you hear somebody on your side of the phone say, <gasps> and then you guess what? You want to know. It's when something opens up and we don't know what it is. We want to know. Everyone is silent. I think it's an interesting picture. Job tells us when God created the world, the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth and the vegetation and animals and men, it says that the angels were singing for joy when they saw His awesome display of power and his creativity. And now, when God is about to pour out on this earth, this earth he created, a judgment that is never known or conceived, silence is triggered. I'm emphasizing that for a reason. 
I'm emphasizing it. Did God put up his hand and tell him, be quiet? It's not in the text. That would only be wild guess if, if God said, quiet. What if Jesus, when he opened up that scroll and looked at its contents, what if he went silent before he read it? What if, what if the anxious anticipation of heaven were awaiting his words? And I tell you, I'm just merely speculating here because I haven't seen this yet. You will. I will. We'll be there. But I wonder if as he opened that scroll and saw the contents of it, a tear came down his cheek. It's not often we find Jesus crying, do we? What, when did he? When he went to a cemetery where Lazarus was? And he looked out over all those tombs? And we don't know why exactly, precisely why he wept. They said it's because he loved him. But Jesus also could see the price tag of sin all the way around him. And he knew where he was going to, to pay for sin. And it says he wept. There's another time we know that he wept, when he stood over the city of Jerusalem. And he looked out upon that city, that city of those he wanted so desperately to pull to himself and shelter them like a hen gathers her chicks. But they would not. They had rejected him, and they planned to reject him entirely at a cross. And that was just days before. And he wept. I do not know, folks. Honestly, I do not know if when Jesus broke that seventh seal and that silence was taking place, if we see tears in his eyes. I do not know that. Because these are things that speak of his wrath. Things that he's going to dump out on this world. And the word says that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I do not think it gives him joy to punish, but he will do it. He's never short on joy, by the way. Because if you take compassion and you take condemnation and you think, well, they can't function simultaneously. Oh, yes, they can in our Lord. And that's the amazing thing about him. He never has one attribute functioning at the expense of another. Never. And so I wonder if it's possible for him to be exceedingly angry and about to pour out wrath and exceedingly compassionate and weeping for those he's about to destroy. I don't know. We'll find out. But something triggered that silence. Something triggered it to such an extent that uh, even Dr. Ravi called it a theatrical pause. We use pauses all the time. 9-11 memorial services have six moments of silence. Some of you know the Oklahoma City bombing calls for 168 seconds of silence. One second for every person who lost their life in that bombing. What's a half hour? What's a half hour? Some people say that the silence reflects the catastrophe that's about to fall on those who refuse to repent. 
the rest of, of the inhabitants of the earth are about to undergo this. I want you to mark something in your thinking. Because you're reading this, and I'm reading this, and we're saying, okay, this is terrible. If you were a tribulational saint, it never says in this passage that you are exempt from what's about to happen. You're on an earth that's being destroyed. You say, well, Lord, can't you separate them out? Well, he could, but it never says that he does. Never says that he does. If you're living in this day as a believer, and suddenly things are going bad on this planet, you're there too. That's terrible to think of. But it's quite a picture. It's an awesomeness of judgment here. Look at through the list here. I'll just scan through the list with you. Matter of fact, this is so terrible that only four of the seven are able to fit into this chapter. The other three are reserved for another chapter because there's just too much horror to these pictures. The first seal, well, the seal is broken, and it says in verse number one, the Lamb broke the seventh seal. There was silence in heaven about a half hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So out of this seal came the seven judgments. You see it? The next set. They broke it open, and now it's seven judgments standing there. And there's an angel there doing something really unusual in verse 3 through 5. It has to do with the prayers of the saints and a golden altar and the sense that's incense that's coming with it and he's taking that and he's setting it up before God and then he takes that censer and he throws it down to the earth and when that happens it says there's verse 5 peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and by the way another earthquake and the seven trumpets sound the seven trumpets sound the first one is in verse 7 The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. Now, I'm a literalist, all right? I don't think this is an imaginary thing, because when Egypt's water was turned to blood, that was real. And it was so foul, the people couldn't stand it. They couldn't drink from it. Who want to? But this says, hail and fire mixed with blood. That's quite a combination, isn't it? They were thrown to the earth. Watch. And a third of the earth was burned up. Picture that. A third of the trees are burnt up. What does that do to our ecology? A third of the green, or a third of the trees were burnt up. All the green grass is burnt up. A third of the earth is burnt, a third of the trees are burnt, all the green grass is gone. That's not a, just an ecology problem. That's an economic problem. That, that's just astronomical. We, we, could not, we could not endure such a tragedy like this. One third. One third is a big number. We talk about the horrors of a grass fire in California. We talk about the number of acres being destroyed. This is, this is incredible. How devastating this is, a third of it. Is it real? Yes, it's real. And it will happen. That's the first of the trumpet judgments. second one follows in verse 8 and 9. And an angel sounded and something like a 
great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the creatures that were in the sea and had life, they died. A third of the ships were destroyed. Again, I take it literally. That's devastating. You say, well, that's the sea. I don't live by the sea. Isn't that nice? Now, there's so much of our world tied to the things of the sea and how that works. And here we have the sea is practically devastated as well. One-third of it is destroyed and commerce with it. One-third of the ships are destroyed. Verse number 10 and 11. A third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. What is that? That, folks, is your fresh water supply. That which you can drink. The name of the star is called Wormwood. That's about bitterness. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. A third of the water supply of this world is destroyed. Is that a problem? Oh, yes. Fourth trumpet judgment. Verse 12 and 13. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it. If the earth, let's say, a simple number... We have uh, daylight for 12 hours. Let's just use that number. Half a day. 12 hours of daylight. Take a third of that out. You now have eight hours of sunlight. You have four hours of darkness. By the way, in the nighttime, those four hours are also taken out of the stars and the moon that shine during the night. Darkness. Eight hours a day of nothing but darkness. Nothing but darkness. Unexplicable darkness. A third of the day. You say, well, that, that, I don't know how that affects me. How does that affect your vegetation that's left? Do they not need the sun? A certain number of hours a day? People say, well, why can't we do daylight saving time and fix all that? Let's adjust the calendars. Let's make adjustments all over the place, folks. If you're living in that day, what happened to your solar energy? There's a problem. The natural cycle of light and darkness that really does have something to do with your emotional health. You start robbing yourself of that, and you've got problems. We've got all kinds of terrible things. If you can sit down and think through all the effects of such things like this, these are all thirds hitting on the planet. Thirds in judgment. And this eagle is flying around the mid-heavens, and it's saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels they're about to sound. I do not read you these things today, and I don't think it's in Scripture, written this way, to scare you to death. These things are awesome. So much so that the heavens go silent when they appear on the scene. Yet we believe in the rapture of the church. Now, I'm not just going to say something like, boy, am I glad we're not going to be here. You know, that's really a good thought. 
And I don't mind that. I actually heard somebody say, we believe in the rapture because we don't want to go through the tribulation. I said, yeah, that's true, I don't. I don't know anybody in their right mind who wants to go through the tribulation. After reading this, do you want that? I don't think so. We can say, well, what a relief that we'll be up in heaven during these judgments. But we're going to be standing there with our mouth shut too. When this happens. The scripture says that when we see him, we shall be like him. We will fully know him. We will fully wear his compassion. We will fully wear his hatred for sin. And if he is silent when it opens, I can't see why we wouldn't be too. And if he sheds a tear because of what's about to come, do you think you're going to stand there without one? Do you know when God tells he's going to wipe the tears from everybody's eyes? Do you know when that's going to happen? After the new heaven and earth is made. Not when you go up to heaven. I have a feeling we're going to be crying too. If that's what's happening at that moment. Whatever the reaction is, we're going to be like him. And we're going to see it from his eyes. And we're going to say, wow. That's enough to keep me quiet for a half hour. What's that benefit for us today? Why do we contemplate this? Why did God write this down for us to see this? Well, I'll give you a couple of reasons. Number one, it's because he wants his, he wants his children to know what he's doing. He's written it out, black and white, and we believe his word, don't we? We take it for the fact it's true, don't we? I think so. That's one of my presuppositions concerning God's word. It's God's word. It is true. It never contradicts itself. Those are my three. And I read this and I say, it's true. God wrote it down. It's going to happen. I don't doubt that one bit. And I read these things and it brings into my thought immediately... Well, what about those who go through it? And folks, if the rapture occurred today, how many people do you know that will still be here tomorrow? Because they do not know the Lord. And guess what they're going to go through? You just read it. You just read it. If that doesn't prick compassion in your heart, I don't know what can if that doesn't make you concerned about your lost brother or sister or mother or father or your uncles or aunts or cousins or neighbors or somebody, I don't know what's wrong with a heart that does not see this and say, Lord, please save them. Save them. Reach their hearts. We don't want anybody to see this. For those who do not know, the Lord will. And here's another thing it does for us in Second Peter chapter number 3. I'll read this little passage to you. This is, this is now, beloved, Peter writes, the second time I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by a way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of our Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that in the last day, mockers will come. And with their mocking, they will follow their own lusts. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the father fell asleep. I'm giving it that nasal sound on purpose, all right? That, it, what they're saying is they're mocking the Lord. They say, ah, that stuff's not true. 
But ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And while they're saying this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, and through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, this present heaven and earth is being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Do not let this fact escape your notice, beloved. He's talking to the believer. Beloved, listen. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like one day. And the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some people count slowness, but he is patient towards you. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, and it will come like a thief. Peter says, that's when the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and all its works will be burnt up. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? We know these things. They're not for us. But what's it mean to us today? What's it mean to us in holy conduct? And godliness. That we're looking and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. I've got to stop, but let me sum it up in simple phrase. Peter tells you to do this. This concerns your holy conduct and your godliness. That's why it's written. It's to affect your behavior. It reflects your desire as well to see God's will fulfilled. Even the pouring out of his wrath on the ungodly. Do you want God's will fulfilled? That should trigger in your heart when you read these things. And it anticipates our trust and expectation that the Lord will keep his promise. That's why we read this. Because someday you and I are going to be residents of a new heaven and a new earth. And all it's going to know is righteousness. What a great place that's going to be. That's what God has promised. Do you believe it? Those who read these passages then, or those who see these things, I need to live according to my calling. I need to live in anticipation of God's will being done. I need to live with that trust in His promise. Because all of those things are not what this world's about, but it is what the believer's about. Those are not characteristics of the world we live in, but they should be the characteristics of those who know Christ and live on this earth right now. Live right now. Scripture says we're to be pure as He is pure. Every single day we're inching toward this, aren't we? Every single day. We're closer than we were last week. We can say that simply, and we know it's true. What sort of people ought we to be in light of all these things? I'll give you chapter 9 as your homework. How's that? I took a little extra time. I don't take your mind. You could take it off something else. But uh, thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your word. It reminds us again of how great you are, how awesome you are, 
how loving you are, how kind you are, how compassionate you are, how desirous you are that people should know you. We are privileged to know you. What a joy that is. What a comfort that is. What a help that is for us as we read a passage like this. But I pray that we'll see this world from your perspective today. May that compassion of Christ fill our hearts. May our words be quick and swift to speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who need to hear it. For there is a great need today for your word to go forth. The world is going to mock it. There are many who need to hear it. May we be good ambassadors for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.